The role of marketing within business continues to evolve, and as we evolve, we need more and more expertise from the folks who have seen the process from all different angles and ideally working for a few different companies. That's why we have Spark Toro's Amanda Natividad joining the show to talk about her role as the company's marketing architect to take the experience she's learned throughout her career and apply it to a new company in a brand new position. Hello again, Blythe Brumley of Digital Dispatch here with one of my favorite people to follow for their marketing perspective, from sharing tips on modern social media marketing to what B2B can learn from B2C, proving ROI, and so much more. All of that is jam-packed into today's episode. So I hope y'all enjoy. of these topics. Let's go ahead and bring in our first guest. She knows the power of dark funnels in marketing. Let's go ahead and bring in Amanda. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Hi, thank you for having me, Blythe. Thank you for coming on the show. I've, I, I followed your work on, on Twitter for, for quite a while. And then to see you join uh, the SparkToro team, it just makes perfect sense. We'll, we'll dive into that a little bit. But it, with your job title with SparkToro, I, I thought that this was interesting because you're listed as the marketing architect. What exactly does a marketing architect do? Yeah, I know. It's pretty wild. It's not a real title, right? <laughs> um, but that kind of speaks to the unconventional nature uh, for which I joined the company and for just how um, co-founders Rand Fishkin and Casey Henry are thinking about hiring. So, you know, when I first joined, um, they they basically were like, hey, make up your own title. What do you want to be? Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized a lot of what I'm going to be doing is setting the foundation for marketing, setting the foundation for customer success or user success, and essentially building a framework for having letting us have a very good product long-term. So I ended up calling it marketing architect because a lot of it is foundational and not all of it is marketing specific, right? You, you notice I pointed out customer success and product. So a lot of it is, you know, it's, it's kind of broad. Um, and then also it's just, um, it is both uh, a tactical and strategic role where I'll be, you know, working on things that inform longer term marketing strategy, but I'm doing the work myself, right? I'm going to, I'm going to be in there managing the Twitter account, uh, managing our events and stuff like that. So really it's, it's, it's what you hinted to earlier. It's really about building that foundational uh, approach to your, your customer. And I love that you brought up customer success, um, mm-hmm. uh, because that, that's something that is often just ignored, but it leads to so many additional successes. It's not just a, you know, a name in and of itself, but you've been in marketing for a long time, but you actually got started as a writer and more behind the scenes producing roles. How do you think that that early on career experience has has propelled you to where you are today. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's kind of funny. I feel I've been doing marketing for a long time. Yes. To your point, but in, in a way it's kind of a third career or a third life for me. Started out in journalism, then pivoted into food by way of culinary school and working in test kitchens and then getting into marketing by way of that food experience. So a lot of my early experience was really focused on writing, writing well, editing and working quickly. I think you can imagine some of the corollaries between working in a newsroom and working in a kitchen where things are hot and things are sharp. So that's kind of given me this uh, ability to, to think quickly on my feet, make decisions pretty quickly, um, and, you know, just get things moving in terms of writing effective copy. 
Yeah, because I, I, when I tell other companies, it, it, when they ask, like, what should be their first hire, I always say a writer, because a writer can just use their skill set in so many different ways, whether it's their video or podcast or email, that hiring the writer should be the, the first step. I, I, I'm right there with you. I, I started out myself as a writer, as a blogger, um, and then moved into all of these different skill sets. But you really have to hone in on that writing skills before yeah. anything else can evolve from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. To your point, I think when you, when you can write effectively, it means you're thinking clearly. It means you're writing persuasively and it informs the rest of your work, right? Like I think, I think for you, a, one of the big reasons you're such a good host is because you're a good writer, right? You're empathetic. You know what lands and what doesn't land. And you can translate that into onto, you know, a video interview. I love that. Thank you for that, for that, by the way. <laughs> now, uh, for, for, for both of us, we all are, or both of us have experience in, in both B2C and, and B2B marketing. And, and as I guess sort of these industries start to evolve, I'm starting to see so many more similarities where, where B2C almost has the edge on experimentation, where B2B is sort of slower to follow, but it seems like they're starting to catch up with each other. Are you noticing that within the, the, the two worlds that they're slowly blending together or are there things that, that uh, B2B can borrow from B2C? Yeah, I agree with you. I think you know, I think for a long time, some of the, some of the savviest B2B marketers have been noticing and have been saying, Hey, B2B marketing doesn't have to be boring. You can still talk in a, in a fun or whimsical or conversational way. And I think more B2B brands are seeing that. Um, and I think, you know, some of the challenge or some of the challenges there were, and maybe we can take a step back a second too. Um, I think, a lot of the challenges are, you know, has to do with price points and sales cycles, right? So in B2B, you're typically selling, you know, services, software, or something in bulk to another business. So each sale or each client is more money, right? Compared to B2C marketing. And generally the sales cycles are a lot longer, which makes sense, right? You might impulse buy a pack of gum, a t-shirt or some lipstick, but you wouldn't impulse buy $10,000 a year software on behalf of your company. So, right. <laughs> right. And, and to your point, you know, you alluded to this a few minutes ago, right? Where, where B2C can, can experiment a little more quickly. It's because of that direct response. Right. And so I think, you know, as we think about what B2B can borrow from B2C, I do think it's it maybe easier said than done, but I think it's a, you know, it's what I said earlier about being conversational, being direct, maybe even being playful or a little bit edgy and I can understand where this is really tough for marketers, right? Because in B2B, you know, we know where you have the higher price points, longer sales cycles. Marketers have come to expect that we're not really selling to one person in a company. You know, we're selling to a team. We're selling to maybe an IT director, their VP, the chief technology officer, and the CEO. So when you zoom out and think of it that way, it's, it's understandable to see how there are a lot of different messages to create and a lot of people to create those messages for. So mm -hmm. I want to say, you know, what B2B can borrow from B2C is that sort of, you know, taking a stance, right? Being that, being playful, edgy, being something to somebody, um, understanding that that's, that may be easier said than done. Well, you, you do a great job of it because you mentioned being playful with some of your content and, and I, 
I'm a big Disney fan. I love someone that could throw in a Disney gift, especially when talking about B2B marketing. What are some of your, your favorite franchises or, or movies to use gifts from? <laughs> to use gifts from? Um, oh my gosh. I, uh, I think anything Kristen Wiig. Any from Bridesmaids that makes me laugh. Yes. The the Mean Girls gif of Regina George saying, get in, loser, we're going shopping. That just makes me laugh. Uh, and not a gif. Per- oh, no, it is a gif. But the one of Elmo, like, on fire with oh, on yeah. fire in the background. I don't know why I love that so much. It really speaks to my essence, maybe. But all the gifts. I love all of them. Yeah, I, I think we've all been in, in, in sort of Elmo's experience from time to time, no matter what career you're working in. What's your favorite <laughs> gift? What's your what's oh, the one that speaks to you? I would say any of them. Disney is obvious is is a big. I'm two hours away from Orlando, so I'm a huge Disney nerd. Um, so I would say that one. Um, I, I I started off the show with a bunch of like Star Wars memes, so I was looking at a bunch of Star Wars memes earlier, and I thought, gosh, I should do this more often just to spice <laughs> it up a little. Um, but those are some of my favorite franchises. Um, I try to use Lord of the Rings too, but not that many people one. know. Uh, you know, get the context behind it. Um, so I try to steer clear away from those. But I think you know, Marvel and Disney are just go-getters because then uh most people understand what i'm trying to say absolutely Um, so so another platform obviously where gifts are are used a ton is is twitter because it 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 has a different kind of a swagger to it than other social media platforms and you're very active on twitter would you say that that's your favorite social media platform or do you have others that that are on your radar um, it's really just Twitter for me. I mean, you know, I, I, I prob I still have a Facebook account, but I don't use it. I just don't. Uh, and then I use Instagram, um, often just for, for close friends and family, but Twitter is where I spend most of my time. I would say. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can tell with the tweets that, that you put out because they get a, you know, obviously really good engagement and they're, they're really, a, you know, just a lot of fun. I feel like that that's the platform where you have a lot more fun on. Um, mm-hmm. and then TikTok, are you, are you on TikTok at all? Are you going to jump on that train or are you a- avoiding it? I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of avoiding it because <laughs> I know how fun it is. Like there have been times where I've been scrolling through and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to look at a couple. And then, you know, two hours go by. Right. <laughs> what did I do? So I haven't been on TikTok in a little while. Um, because I love it too much. <laughs> That's a right. problem for It's me. very, it's highly addicting. And yeah. I, I now have a good excuse that I could say now it's for work because I've started adding a segment to the show, which will, will debut later on, uh, mm-hmm. like the, the best TikToks I've seen. So now that's my excuse <laughs> in order to, to, you know, I guess say it's for work now, it's right? Valid. It's two hours. Absolutely before. valid. <laughs> Now for your newest gig, you are, or for folks who don't know, you, you have joined Spark Toro, which is, well, why don't, why don't I let you explain what Spark Toro is and, and, and how you ultimately join the company? Yeah. So Spark Toro is an audience research startup. Um, we give marketers or, you know, anybody really marketers, entrepreneurs, small businesses, um, the, the data that they need to make better decisions about marketing. So, you know, I think, Anybody who's maybe new to marketing or, hey, any solopreneur, they might be thinking, I need to get my product or my uh, my services out there. Maybe I'll just run some Facebook ads or run some Google ads. And yes, you can do that and that can be effective. Uh, but you're also throwing money at something in, in hopes of it coming back to your business. With SparkToro, we put a lot of the you know quantity behind the qualitative data. So you might be wondering, so using this as an, as an example, we have in our audience here, a lot of people who work in logistics, 
in the SparkToro tool, I did a search for people in logistics, people who frequently talk about logistics. Um, I saw that other phrases they might be talking about pretty frequently are, you know, supply chain, uh, chain logistics. And then from there, I'm able to see, well, what are some of the websites that people in this audience frequent, right? What are the social accounts they follow? What are the titles they might hold? What are some of the dem demographics about these people? And then using that information and being a little bit more savvy about how you're marketing, right? So using sticking with the logistics and supply chain examples, you know, I'm seeing that um, some social accounts that people who say those words a lot follow most are supply chain brain, supply chain network, supply chain digital, um, maybe some hidden gems are MIT supply chain, inbound mm -hmm. logistics, um, accounts like that. So then maybe people in your audience can be thinking, okay, maybe I'll follow these accounts. Maybe I'll read some of their content. Maybe I'll reply back to these accounts in hopes of raising my profile within this audience. And so it's really, it feels like a tool to really help out not only market research, but maybe put your buyer personas or, or, or generating your ICP almost on steroids. Is that a safe Absolutely. assumption? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, awesome. I'm just saying that with my arms raised. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> many years ago, you know, when I worked, I used to work at Fitbit, the fitness tracker company on the B2B side where we sold into, uh, the HR and benefit space. And, um, an agency that we worked with told us, Hey, you know, people in the HR and benefit space, they tend to read entrepreneur magazine, psychology today and they're on linkedin pretty often and this was before spark toro was invented and back then i as the head of content who worked very closely on events and demand generation i realized oh if my audience is reading entrepreneur and psychology today that tells me they see themselves as entrepreneurs hmm. they see themselves as savvy about people they want to understand what motivates people and that really shifted my mindset about how I marketed to them. I no longer was thinking, oh, HR people, they're thinking about HR. Yes, but they're <laughs> in HR because they see themselves as in the business of people. And that mm. might, that, that shift in mindset can really, it can really do a lot for the way you market to your audience. It can help you understand them on a deeper level, can help you connect with them and even tap into some shared terminology. And SparkToro helps you do that really easily at scale. And that, would you say that that's a safe assumption of, of, of why you ultimately joined the team is, is because you were a big fan of the, the information that they were providing? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of everything we've talked about so far, right? It's my, it's, it was my frequent activity on Twitter. That was where um, founder uh, Rand Fishkin and I had connected. Uh, we just kind of became friends through Twitter. And then he ended up visiting uh, my hometown, just, you know, by coincidence. And we met up for lunch with his wife. It just felt like old friends mm -hmm. uh, seeing to get, see, like, hanging out for the first time in a couple of years. So it was just really nice. And then, um, but, you know, aside from that, that was what I've talked about with HR and benefits and marketing to those people. That's really like what, 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 you know, why, what attracted me to SparkToro itself, right? Where this is solving problems that, I had been trying to solve with great difficulty for many years. Um, and so that really speaks to me as a marketer and to someone who's always been on scrappy teams and wants to be smarter about doing all the other marketing campaigns. 
Now, market research and, and finding out what your audience wants, especially when it comes to to modern day activities or, or modern day strategies and tactics, it, it, there's a lot of people in logistics and, and, and transportation that really struggle with, with marketing. And, mm-hmm. and you have some actual experience working for a shipping company called ShipBob. And there, how did you, what was sort of, a, I guess, a breakthrough moment in, in within your time at ShipBob mm-hmm. that really said, oh, wow, that there's a lot of potential here for this industry that we can capitalize on? Oh, absolutely. So um, I wasn't at ShipBob for too long, but I will say, you know, the things that the, those, those really key moments for me there was really seeing how deeply passionate the employees at ShipBob are about solving problems in supply chain logistics. Um, I think in, what's unique about this industry is that for for people who don't work in this industry, it seems simple, right? Get me the thing that I need at the time that I need it. Sounds, I mean, I think that in essence is simple, but we all know too well here that a lot of stuff, a lot of work and a lot of logistics go into making some things look seamless. Right. So, um, seeing the opportunities there. And then I think what was, what's also interesting, I think in the fact that logistics is something that people can sort of understand easily at a high level, getting, ordering the thing, getting the thing sounds simple. Um, people can connect that easily. And so I think there's tremendous opportunity in content, which they have been, you know, take, capitalizing on, right? They've been, they have a great blog that really makes it easy to understand how to get started with your supply chain or or managing your logistics in a smarter way. Um, but I think there's also such a great opportunity in telling the stories of these entrepreneurs. Um, one of the things that has, that's so fascinating to me about ShipBob specifically is I think for people who don't know the industry might think, Oh, the biggest competitor is Amazon. That's it. If Amazon does this thing, then like, that's it. But it's so not the case, right? You, you can be a ShipBob customer and an Amazon customer. One does not eliminate the other. Um, and I think what's interesting about ShipBob is that truly the, the, the biggest competitor are the customers themselves. It's the people who have built their businesses out of their homes, out of their garages, who are still, f- who are still picking and packing their own boxes, driving to UPS and dropping it off. Those are mm. the biggest competitors. And so the opportunity for ShipBob is to really elevate these customers and tell their stories and to tell these stories of how, hey, here's how I graduated from packing out of my basement to now having my own uh, my own spot in a warehouse where they're doing all this for me and I am managing it through an app. I love that because those are the stories that we connect with. And and as you were talking about that, like a, a few different TikToks have come to mind where people started up and you, maybe they were laid off or, 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 you know, something happened where they lost their job and they started up a little side hustle out of their home. And now watching some of those artists move from an Etsy store into an e-commerce store and then graduate, like you said, from, from packing all of the orders within their home office or even just a, a you know, a bedroom, part of the bedroom, and then moving it into a larger space. Those are the stories that I feel like still need to be told in in, in the world of logistics. So you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and by the way, ShipBob is on TikTok and they do some really great fun content about like picking and packing and shipping. And that was, I think what was so fun there was that, you know, people don't always think about B2B being on TikTok, but it works so well for ShipBob because 
so much of what they do is tied to that physical output. So it lends itself very well to images, to video, and obviously to TikTok. <laughs> oh, awesome. I, I wanted to, I re, I'm resisting the urge right now to pick up my phone <laughs> and, and go give them a follow because I'm sure that's going to be some great content coming out of there. Um, now, now moving on to our next topic, uh, I, I've heard you mention the importance of building communities. Now in a world dominated by social media algorithms that I've, been told a few different times that you need to move and to start building a community. But as a marketer, what are the challenges? And I, I guess maybe some some tips that you can give us on on how to build a community that's independent or maybe complementary to social media. Yeah, it's it's tough, right? Because community is it needs to start on a very on a very organic level where you can't build a community and then bring it to people and expect them to, to engage with it. Right. You need to, um, you know, you, you build a community and you have to do a lot of things that don't scale. Right. Like, um, some of the most successful community builders I know are doing a lot of things that don't scale. They are, um, these community builders are calling community members one-on-one -on, -one on the phone, having conversations with them, understanding why they joined, what they want out of the community. So that's a really key thing that I think community builders need to be aware of. Like, why are people joining? And there's also just give them a reason to join. And a, there should be a reason that the community exists. Hmm. Um, where I have seen communities not do well is when the community builders are are maybe their marketing managers whose leadership told them, Hey, go build a community, make it happen. And they're like, okay, now I'm building a community. Like right. this is more. There needs to be like some kind of organic, um, like traction or some seed of interest, whether it starts out maybe with a really engaged TikTok following Twitter following, or maybe you have a strong email list where you have like 10 people who consistently reply to you and say, Hey, thank you for this. Or I have a question. Those are the people who are going to be your most active community members, the, the, the strongest champions for your community. So I would say tap into that. Um, and I think, um, yeah. And I think, you know, that there, there's, there isn't really any one set place to start. It's really just where the people are and then building mm -hmm. from there in a way that makes sense for them in a way that makes ongoing engagement easier. Yeah, because I, I I've I've been invited to a few different um, logistics communities, and my first thought is, oh, there's another social network that I have to be a part of, and it just gets exhausting. So it's, and then you're also told as a marketer to go out and 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 do all the things. So it's 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 difficult at times to to know what to do and what not to do. Um, so so that brings me to my next question, as far as like any kind of tools that you're using, whether it's to, to, to build a community or to, to help with social media posting, are there any tools that are out there that within your tech stack that are absolutely must haves? Yeah. So I, I like to, so for Twitter, I like using ILO.so for analytics. It gives you some nice visual visualizations and graphs of, um, engagement, follower account, that kind of thing. Um, I also really like using Zapier for um, not even just content creation or management, but also for day-to-day -day management. So uh, one quick example would be I have two calendars, right? My personal Google calendar and my work Google calendar. And my husband and I are sometimes coordinating on like, you know, things like I have a meeting at this time. Can you watch our child at this time while I do my meeting? And so there's a lot of, um, a lot of logistics involved for us to manage our day to day. So I use Zapier to copy events from my work calendar 
into my personal calendar. Um, it was, you know, it was like 10 minutes of, of upfront work for me. And then now everything's automatically copied. And so my husband can look at my personal calendar and know, you know, what meeting I'm in at that given moment. Smart. That's really smart. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's one of my biggest uh, hangups right now is just communicating schedule availability. I mean, you can have like calendar tools out there that, hey, you know, schedule a link via this, via this. But sometimes it feels a little rude to send that instead of um, just, you know, manually replying to people. Yeah, um, I know you mean, I, I would add to that for the calendar link stuff. Something, a way I've kind of gotten around some of the awkwardness is asking other people for their calendar link. Like I don't, I don't even have one. I just say, do you have one? Let me book a time on your, on your calendar. And it's much oh, easier. Smart. <laughs> yeah. Cause then I, I mean, sometimes I just feel like a jerk, like, Hey, here's, you know, thanks for your email, but here's my link. Let's, let's <laughs> set up a time to talk. And it just right. it sounds very like egotistical. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm just too, too much in, in my own head, but it's, it's one of those things where it's like, this makes my life easier, but does it make their life easier? Right. Um, and am I, I sending yeah. the, the wrong impression? I like to think it makes it easier because then they can, they can look at their own calendar and decide like, great, these five times, I want this time, the first one of the day that works best for me. <laughs> now, now, going back to Twitter for a second, you had a great thread the other day about the power of a case study. Where do most people get it wrong when it comes to case studies? Um, there's a good case study will take you a long time to create. It'll take you a long time to source that perfect customer, that perfect client. Um, really listen to their story, retell that story in a, in a verifiable way. So I think, I think sometimes, you know, some marketing teams are like, got to get more case studies. Let's do like three a month. That's too much to me. I think you can be a lot more impactful by doing one case study per quarter, even if, if, if that's what you need to do. Um, and so by quality, what I mean is one of the most impactful things you can do for, for a strong case study is get not your metrics for success, but your customers, the, the way your customer is tracking success with the use of your services, your tool, your software, whatever it is that you are creating. Um, that's what really matters, right? Because, you know, if you have a corporate messaging app like Slack, you can say, you know, within one week, all employees sent a collective 100,000 messages. Okay, that's nice. Don't know what that means for someone you know, outside looking in, but what does it mean for that company? Maybe that company realized, oh, in using Slack or this other messaging tool, we realized we reduced five hours of meetings per week per person. Like that's incredible. And that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that maybe that messaging app wouldn't be able to track. That's what you learn by talking to your customers, by listening to their stories, by listening to their personal stories of like, how it, an end user or a person in their company really connected with that product. Um, so that's really important. And I think ultimately it's, it aligns better with the customer's incentive. Um, your customer isn't eager to brag about you or talk about your product. Your customer wants to talk about how they were successful with your product. Smart. Yeah. Because I, it, it, we, we tend to forget that the internet is selfish they don't care about you. They care about themselves and finding uh, wh what they want to find, when they want to find it. And sometimes it's entertaining. Sometimes it's inspiring or educational. Uh, but it has to be one of those things in order for them to even appreciate it to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the, the, the topic of, you know, 
putting the case study in the perspective of, of what is the, the, the ROI that we're going after and what's the ROI that the, the, the customer is going after, because that essentially is, is what marketers are sort of tied to as far as performance metrics are concerned. Do, do you, how are, are you selling content marketing today as an investment to, you know, say the C-suite as far as, you know, what the ROI, when they ask that question, what, what answer are you giving them? Yeah. So I think what's, what's interesting about this now is I, I think more and more people in the C-suite are kind of understanding the value of content, but you know, what's tough is that a lot of this is long-term. Um, and this, this is why I call content marketing an investment. It's an investment, not a cost center. It is, you know, when you invest in high quality content, whether it's sourcing subject matter experts who are writers, um, sourcing great editors, taking some time to understand SEO and making sure your blog is adhering to some SEO best practices, um, investing in, in shows like this, right? Like high quality content that meets people where they are and the way that they want to digest it. Um, but I also think that you can think about that and you can also think about the short-term wins with content. And this is also why I love case studies so much. Case studies to me are, they help you realize that high ROI in content in the short term. You can mm. work, you as a content marketer can work really hard on a case study for like two weeks, get a really strong story together, and then give it to your sales team and help them close a deal. That's a short-term goal it can meet. Um, other things that content teams can do will be, you know, partnering closely with events teams, um, making sure that the content they're creating is aligned with the event strategy, working closely with PR teams. I love when content and PR teams work closely together because a lot of the work that each of them do can really support each other. So mm -hmm. an example would be, you know, content marketers, they're already doing a lot of research on the industry in which the company plays in, um, finding third-party stats, um, verifiable data. PR teams can use that information. They can use those same things as talking points to, to really uphold their messaging. So that's a short-term win, you know, getting, being Love able that. to source strong research or third-party data that can be used in a press release or media messaging. That's absolutely a win. Hmm. I love that. And, and, it, and it's such a, it, it's a good segue to, to my next question because a lot of these, well, I guess, yeah, it, a lot of these marketers are, are one man operations or one woman operations. And it, it giving them so many things at once, especially all of the things that we've talked about in this show, it can sort of feel overwhelming. So for those one person teams, what, what, what are two to three tactics or, or strategies would you tell them to invest their time in right now in order to get, you know, sort of the, the, the best bang for their buck time-wise? I think the best bang for their buck will be, um, deepening focus and expertise in the channels that are already working or getting the most out of what you already have. So if you have, and I, th I think that my, that most often tends to be in an email list um, because they probably have some customers or some prospects, people they're actively marketing and remarketing to. That's a really, that's a really great focus because mm -hmm. you have the email address, you have the name, they vaguely know who you are. Such a good opportunity to strengthen and build that relationship. Um, and then I would also say focusing on a channel that has built-in distribution tends to be social media. Um, it'll depend, you know, where the target market is, but this might be Twitter, it might be LinkedIn or Instagram. 
um, my strongest hunch is that it's probably Twitter and LinkedIn yeah. for the most, <laughs> for the most part, right. Where, where people are, where decision makers are, are looking at content and stuff like that. But I call those content channels with built-in distribution because it's, it really is both, right. Like you're using, taking Twitter as an example, you're using the opportunity for Twitter threads to show your expertise, to explain something. You're writing something, you're creating there, but it's also the distribution platform. That's where people already are. That's where they're going to be sharing, uh, retweeting, liking that content. Yeah, so I guess I should probably change my Twitter strategy from complaining about the Jaguars into more of, you know, the expertise of, of, of what I'm talking about now. Or, hey, maybe you do a thread on, you know, eight ways the Jaguars can improve for the next season. <laughs> well, let, well, let's hope only one of those includes the quarterback position. So if we can do that, I think that, that, that my complaints will be held to a minimum for the first time in a decade. <laughs> that would be amazing, by the way. <laughs> um, all right, and, and finally, uh, Amanda, uh, you plan on to start co-hosting the show Office Hours with Rand Fishkin of, of Spark Toro. Uh, tell us a little bit about that show, what you hope to accomplish with it, and, and where folks can, can tune in. Yeah, we're very excited about it. Um, the series starts next Thursday, August 5th. Um, at 11 a.m. Pacific time, uh, nice. office hours is going to be every about every other Thursday or so. An ongoing show where we I, I'm basically calling it having myself and Rand Fishkin as your personal marketing advisors for an hour. We're going to oh, wow. have it. We will have a short presentation on you know on an overall topic. Um, we're kicking off with um, a short presentation on on how agencies and consultants can get the most out of SparkToro, um, and then we have some questions that I'm taking from people in our email list so far. And then, you know, you can sign up. It's completely free to join. Ask your questions about marketing strategy, audience research, um, all that good stuff. Um, we are hosting it on Crowdcast. So you can find us on Crowdcast. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Amanda Nat, and you can learn more there. And then sparktoro.com. That's the tool, uh, the website where you can access the tools. And yeah. Perfect. Well, I, I'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes so you guys can, can find all of that information and all of Amanda's great insight uh, pretty quickly and pretty easily. So so thank you again for, for coming on the show and, and thank you for your perspective. It is really valued and really appreciated. Thank you so much, Bly. This was so much fun. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Digital Dispatch Podcast. As always, you can find each show I publish along with more insight over on my website, digitaldispatch.io. If you like this podcast, then I think you'll love another show that I host, Cyberly, which covers the attention economy, B2B marketing, tech, and how it all ties into the world of logistics. That show airs every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, live on FreightWaves TV. There are also some links to my social media accounts along with my products and services that might be of interest to you. You can find them in the show notes or again over on my website at digitaldispatch.io. If you found this episode interesting and or entertaining, be sure to share it with a friend. Word of mouth is the best kind of marketing and since podcast discoverability has and remains an issue in this medium, I trust and rely on folks like yourself that will share it with those who would also find it useful. Until next time, my name is Blythe Bromley, and I will see you real soon.